You are listening to the Pragmatic Christian Podcast with your host, Hayden Bruce. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Pragmatic Christian Podcast. I am Hayden Bruce, and today I am talking to podcast host and Twitter theologian Mason Menega. Mason was first on the show back in 2018, where we talked about his podcast and some of his theological commitments. I wanted to have him back on so we could discuss his development since then, and he did not disappoint. We talk about Twitter as a tool for theologians and academics. We talk about Christian identity, fundamentalism, and a lot more. There's so much we didn't have time to get into, like Mason's process theology, so Mason will definitely be returning. Uh, If you want to check out our first conversation, that's episode 19, which was released September 7th of 2018. Definitely check out Mason's podcast, A People's Theology. And if you want to check out more from Mason, I'll have links to everything in the show notes. One more thing before we begin, there was a technical problem with my mic's volume starting really low whenever I started talking and then slowly getting louder as I spoke. Um, I tried my best to correct it, but there was only so much I could do. Luckily, it only lasts for about five or so seconds uh, each time, and I'm positive you'll be able to follow along from context clues. Uh, I want to get right into it, so thank you all again for listening. Now here's my conversation with Mason Menega. How you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I got my gin and tonic next to me, so oh, nice. I had a pretty good day at work. So yeah, I'm oh. doing quite well. Oh, I fucked up. I should have got a drink. Yeah, I mean that's the only way to do this, right? I know. I'm tempted to make you wait longer, but I feel like I've already delayed too much. Oh um, no. I mean, if you want to go get a beer, go get a beer. You know Don't what? Worry. I'm actually gonna do that because I've never drank while doing the podcast before, and I feel like this is the perfect time. So once it's the only way to do it. Only way to do it. All right, we're back. What what'd you get? Uh, I got Rope Brewing Powerboat Belgian Style Weed Ale. Oh. My buddy gave it to me. It's a uh, brewery here in uh, Michigan in Royal Oak. Oh, nice. Are you are you in Grand Rapids? No, I went to school in Grand Rapids, but I live over in Detroit. Here, oh, okay. I feel like Detroit's one of those... Like I was thinking the other day, like I don't know anybody who has lived in st louis nor has ever even been to st louis but supposedly it's a city of like a million people or more and has like professional sports so i really don't believe st louis really exists detroit (laughs) is like also one of those cities where i'm like does it really exist i don't even know anybody who lives there nor like even like visits there but anyway it must exist yeah no that makes sense from i mean i've lived here my whole life but from what you hear in like the media or like on podcasts or people talking about it, it definitely sounds like a mythical place. People only talk about it, but like no one's actually been there. So that right. makes complete sense. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like St. Louis is literally the exact of like, it's it, like supposedly sport teams are there, but I'm not too convinced that it actually really exists other than maybe like that, the, that, uh, that little big arch. I've I almost weared uh wore weared I almost wore my I haven't even drank it I've almost I almost wore my uh, Detroit Tigers hat which has a signature by Paws who is the mascot was for a, the team Oh okay who is the they had a I didn't really pay much attention to baseball for a while but they had a they had a catcher that was really good in like the mid two thousands um anyway. If I heard it, I'd know it. I know absolutely nothing about sports other than like hockey. And even that, I've been been out of it for a couple years. They've just been really disappointing. So I haven't really been paying paying too much attention. Um, Yeah. How you doing, man? Yeah, I'm I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Yeah. I have, uh, you know, the quarantine really hasn't affected my life a ton other than I'm working from home now. Um, Yeah, I was going to ask you. Yeah, other than. Yeah, other than that, it uh, you know it's been like pretty similar of a like life. Uh, obviously, like I can't go out on like a weekend or something, but really, other than that, it's it's hasn't really changed a ton. Yeah, I uh, I've been working from home. Well, I started working from home early this year, so my life hasn't changed too much other than not being able to leave. I already have been just becoming more and more of an introvert over the last couple of years, ever since I graduated college. And so like, I, I was like, at one point 
I was like, I feel like my life has not changed at all in the last month. I'm like, that's like, that's a problem. Like I need an intervention. Like (laughs) I'm married and my wife's like, yeah, you need to leave the house. I've been telling you that for months. And I'm like, well, Corona made me realize it for sure. Um, I'm glad to be doing this though, because, uh, we're both drinking beer. You're drinking a gin and tonic or you're drinking a gin and tonic. I just grabbed Mm -hmm. a beer. This is not only my first beer uh, while podcasting, which that's exciting, but this is also my first beer during the coronavirus lockdown. Oh, wow. So I'm really, you know, I'm breaking through uh, all the walls. Wow. I mean, it's really been alcohol that uh, has made this somewhat survivable, but wow, that's interesting. First beer during Corona. Yeah, it's a, it's, yeah, it's a big milestone. Um, what's work been like for you? You got a new job uh, relatively recently, right? What do you do? Yeah, now? actually today, today is my 90th day. So today is three months. Um, yeah, I'm in a missions counselor for United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Mm. So it's a seminary in, uh, in St. Paul. You should totally go there. Um, and anyway, yeah, like it's an amazing seminary, super progressive. Um, we're, we're small, but we are, I think really doing a lot of things, uh, to make sure that we have a sustainable model moving forward as more and more seminaries are closing. United is increasing enrollment. Um, and so I, I'm really proud to be a part of an institution that's really doing all that it can to make sure that, you know, theological education still exists in America, even as we continue to see it decline. Yeah, for sure. Um, I really, I really like, I really like, you know, especially for like a progressive seminary, it's really great that we're, we're sort of an outlier and that we are continuing to grow. Mm. Um, yeah, we, you came on my podcast a couple of years ago, I think it was two. 2018. Um, I don't remember Mm -hmm. exactly. Um, but we kind of talked about your background and some of your Mm -hmm. beliefs and commitments, um, a little bit about your, you know, your upbringing, um, as a Christian and some of your deconstruction. I, Mm -hmm. when I, Mm -hmm. when I do these, you know, part twos and threes with people who have been on the show before, I really like to dig into the development, um, of their thinking and believing and practices, uh, since we last spoke, um, mm. I know that you're mm-hmm. really into process. I don't know if I'd be able to call myself a process person or not, but I'm definitely process adjacent. We'll, we'll get you there. We'll get yeah, you there. Yeah, yeah. Maybe drink a couple more beers. We'll get you there. Yeah, for sure. Well, I got two here. Uh, <laughs> so I think we'll there you go. There. That's all it Pretty takes cool. too. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I'm always really interested in the process and development and growth and evolution. I'm very much, um, as you know, I'm very much interested or influenced by the pragmatists who are very process adjacent as well. Um, I think, I think Dewey, John Dewey said that growth is the only moral ideal or something to that effect. Um, but yeah, I'm interested in your, in your growth and development since then. So walk me back. You used to, um, host a podcast called religionless church. You don't anymore. That name died. Yeah. That name died. Yeah. So I, I was hosting a podcast called religionless church at the time that we last talked. Um, and yeah, back, I mean, it, it was a long time coming at that time that when we initially talked, uh, the podcast had only been out for probably a few months. Um, but over the course of at least a year, I kind of increasingly realized that the purpose of the podcast felt comfortable for me. Like it, it felt like, um, maybe like the purpose and the premise of it had immediately changed, but like where I was at with the, with what I was doing with the podcast felt comfortable to me. It felt like the kind of thing I wanted to explore. But the name didn't really fit that anymore. The initial premise, it, had I like actually gone down the premise of it, I think the name would have fit much better. Um, but yeah, like eventually the premise of it kind of immediately changed after starting it. And I was comfortable with it. I liked it. I liked that premise as an exploration. But the name needed to change. And so I kind of basically waffled for a while about what it could be. I really liked the idea of like, like theology that's really accessible and it's done by the people and it's for the people, right? Like that kind of like, um, uh, it sort of feels like the, like a kind of like 
revolutionary period kind of thing, right? Like the for the people, by the people, that kind of thing. So anyway, I really liked that idea. Uh, and it felt like that was the premise of it. I was talking to people who may or may not be academic theologians, who may or may not be church leaders, uh, but but all of which are doing theology that's specifically accessible for people and theology that is meant to liberate and inspire people. So that's what it kind of felt like. That was what I was doing. So I needed to create a name that that more adequately fit that other than religionless church, which did not at all. So yeah, then I like, you know, I was sort of thinking, I'm like, oh, I remember like at one point, like seeing like a book title or so I, I don't remember what it exactly was, but like seeing like a people's history or something like that, like that feels right. Like a people's history. Uh, so I'm like, you know what? That's what my thing is. It's like a people's theology. This is the, a theology that's for the people, by the people. Um, and it felt a lot more comfortable. It felt like that was the name for it, right? Like in the same way that like a band, you know, whatever genre the band is trying to do, and then like finding a name for that band that fits the thing that they're trying to do musically, like it felt like that. It felt like that name was fitting with what I was trying to do. And so I changed it. And with the change, right, like a whole like new design needed to be made. So I like spent a long time trying to like create a new design. And eventually back in October of 2019, so probably like a year and a half after doing starting Religionless Church, actually more than that, almost almost two years into starting Religionless Church, I decided to change the name to a people's theology. So the podcast is the same, like the premise and everything is the same. I'm interviewing people um, who, again, may or may not be theologians, may or may not be uh, church leaders, but talking with them about their work and how their work is inspiring and liberating. Um, and so, yeah, and it, it's felt really good. It felt like, I mean, th the response to it has been great. Uh, it For a lot of people who initially saw like the words religionless church, it just it didn't wasn't catchy enough like it didn't have the th like the oomph for it uh for people who were totally unfamiliar with who I was or what I was doing uh they just didn't care about that that term that name but then when they see a people's theology they're able to immediately kind of get an idea of like what this thing might be about um and it's more immediate of what uh, of what the name signifies and so because of that, I think just the response has been a lot better. I created uh, like accounts for it and the, the like just the engagement with that has been really great. So yeah, I, I think overall it's been an incredibly positive transition. I'm really proud that I did that. It felt risky, but it also um, has been incredibly fruitful. Um, so anyway, I'm really proud of it. Uh, I think it's been really great. And uh, so yeah. All that's to say, the name changed, but essentially the premise hasn't. Yeah, in a way, religionless church uh, is a little bit more um, sarcastic. Is not the word, but it smacks you in the face. It's a little bit more abrasive. A people's theology is a little softer, but I feel like over the last totally. couple of years, uh, your Twitter account has definitely gotten zestier, <laughs> spicier, <laughs> in all, yeah, in all the ways. Uh, so while the name has uh, softened a little bit as far as like, like I feel like religionless or religionless, what was it? It was religionless Christianity. Church, yeah. Church, church. Religionless church. It was a pun. It was kind of a pun, not really a pun, but like a play of words off of Bonhoeffer's religionless Christianity. Right. right. And so that was like the other thing, right? Like if I had, like if people asked me about it, like it, I had to do this whole, like, well, it's Bonhoeffer and Bonhoeffer. Like it just, it was too much. Mm -hmm. But a people's theology seems pretty self-explanatory. Yeah, I think it's a great uh, name change. I was kind of jealous about it. Uh, I've been wanting <laughs> to change my name since I started the podcast, like from day one. I hated the name, and I basically only chose it because I'm like, I've been wanting to start this podcast for the last like two years. And I'm like, if I don't mm -hmm. just get it out now, I'll never do it. So I just did right. it, um, and I've regretted the name ever since. Um, <laughs> and people have told me, like, yeah, like <laughs> it doesn't really communicate what I think you want it to communicate. Like at first I thought like pragmatic Christian, maybe it was similar to when you were doing religionless church, but I, you know, I was thinking pragmatic Christian. Um, okay. Like you're being a pragmatic Christian. Like every, when I first started, um, researching pragmatism, 
uh, you go online, you start Googling pragmatism and pragmatic Christianity and all the relevant words to try to see if anyone has ever commented on, you know, the connection of the two. Has anyone, you know, taken a pragmatist perspective on religion and Christianity and everything you read are um, about like lukewarm Christians, they're pragmatic, you know, or, or, uh, you know, (laughs) megachurch Christians, they're pragmatic, they, you know, don't really care about theology and doctrine and um, yeah, they just you know, do things. Yeah, exactly. That's what a pragmatic Christian yeah. is like. So I was like, oh, okay. So if I choose this name, maybe people will be like, oh, he's not a real Christian and like maybe like be interested. I don't think that's ever worked once. I don't think I've gotten a single <laughs> follower. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, I have um, gravitated towards myself all sorts of people who are interested in pragmatism. So that certainly worked. Um, and, and like, I found myself in a world that I really didn't realize, um, that I was going. Cause when I first started off, I was like, I'll be kind of like a popular, um, you know, critic of religion and Christianity being like a bad boy, uh, like mm-hmm. in the church and stuff, which, uh, from the perspective of uh, the people in charge of the college I went to, like, they definitely saw me that way, but it right. was like five people and none of them, you know, shared the link, uh, with anyone. So I wasn't getting any listeners from them. Um, Anyway, yeah, the name names of the podcast are definitely a sore spot for me. I'm still looking for a good name. Um, <laughs> so when we last talked, the whole religionless church thing, you were very much, or at least what you communicated to me, is that you were interested in ecclesiology and reimagining um, an ecclesiology mm-hmm, for our mm-hmm, times mm-hmm. Um, that was you know, coming out of an emergent church um, tradition yeah. and trying to build on what they were doing. Do you still see ecclesiology at the center of your thought or have you developed away from that as a focus? Yeah, that's a great. So in terms of like my own personal theology, it's still something that I think about all the time and I still deeply care about it. Mm. Um, in terms of like the theology that I've been doing publicly, I've moved away from it probably a little bit. Um, every now and then I'll like chime in and, and talk a little bit about it. Um, and I'm always open to having those conversations about ecclesiology. Um, again, it still really matters to me. Um, I really, I, I'm still really deeply convinced that if you really want to see theological changes that happen in Christianity, ecclesiology needs to be the way by which theology changes. It needs to be the, if you have like a particular theological idea that you're wanting to kind of spread and, and make uh, and highlight and all of those sort of things, like really evangelize for lack of a better term, you really need an, a, an ecclesiology that supports that really well. Uh, and so I'm really convinced that any changes that have happened within Christianity, really significant changes, like, like the Reformation, for example, those were ecclesiological changes. Um, and, and so because an ecclesiology was changed, therefore the theology behind it was then able to manifest and make significant changes. Everybody talks about the theology that changed in the Reformation. Nobody talks about the implica- the ecclesia, the ecclesial implications that Luther was suggesting in his theology, especially in the 95, the 95 theses. Yeah. Um, so all of that's to say, I really think ecclesiology matters a lot to me in the way I think about things. Um, but I also don't want to be the person who is uh, cornered in and narrowed down as the ecclesiologist. I, not only like just publicly are you not going to sell books that way, you're not going to make a podcast that way. Like it just none of that. Like unless you're reformed, unless you're super reformed and it's like a hyper specific niche market. But like I don't have that market. I'm not going to nail down that market. And so uh, I like it's just it's not going to. Be something that I can make probably a career off of if I wanted to. Um, and so like I started really branching out um, and started really thinking about other things and really to focus on a lot of other things um, that I think could really matter to a lot of people that a lot of people are already thinking about and are needing and wanting and hoping for other people to really help articulate some of the things that they're thinking about. I don't think ecclesiology is one of those. Although again, it's still something I really care about. Um, and so yeah, I think Probably since the last time that we talked, you know, ecclesiology was certainly the center of my theology, and, and you know, it's still certainly there. Um, but I really, in the last, like, certainly in the last two years, um, in accompaniment with process theology, have really been thinking a lot about embodiment, materiality, um, and, and liberation. 
Um, and, and I think process theology is a really good accompaniment for all three of those things as we, as we think about how we engage in the world. Um, you know, sort of in, the, in the, you know, with what you're exploring with pragmatism, and I'm not super familiar with pragmatism, but um, I think there's a lot of overlap between all of those. Um, so anyway, I, I've been really interested in exploring all of those because I think for a lot of people right now, who are interested in theology and interested in Christianity, they want to know what, how, how is it that the, these theologies that they hear about, how does it matter to them in their lives? How does it matter to other people in their lives? How does it matter to the world that they see? Um, and if a theology is not able to articulate that well, if a theology is not able to um, think about in a really holistic way, in a really integrative way, those those questions about how theology matters to the world, then then theology will cease to be uh, relevant. It will become obsolete. And so, yeah, those questions about embodiment, materiality, and um, liberation are questions that I think really relate well to how theology really matters to the world and matters to people. Um, and so, those are the kind of questions I really been wrestling with, especially from a process lens. Hmm. Yeah, I uh, I certainly am right there with you um, with all those trains of thought and where your thought is leading you um, as far as embodiment goes. I mean, it, it's obvious why you were interested in ecclesiology to begin with. If you think of ecclesiology in a broad sense where it's the embodiment of the community, of the community yeah. of— um, I mean, The metaphor body of Christ even, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> Total embodiment, yeah. Which, I mean, you could even connect it to a broader um, liturgical way of thinking where it's the way it's it's the way you move and the way that you interact with people. It's the way that it's mm-hmm. the action, it's the verb, it's the way you're doing things, the embodied way that you are relating to Christ and to Christ through um, your relationship with others. Um, I definitely agree or I certainly sympathize with that broader sense of ecclesiology. Um, but yeah, as far as the market goes, you, you lost that market a while ago through your Twitter account. Uh, maybe we should, maybe we should just talk about your Twitter because your yeah, Twitter game yeah. is de- <laughs> because that it's funny that Mason Mason's Menengas uh, Twitter account has been become a, a topic of conversation. Um, which did you ever think that that would happen? Was that your goal from the beginning? No, I mean, I I legitimately enjoy Twitter. Like, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I mean, I know a lot of people really struggle with Twitter and everything, and I get that. Like, I, I totally empathize with with the way in which one's experienced Twitter. I happen to really enjoy it. <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't have the podcast that I have without Twitter. Um, I wouldn't have all of the professional connections that I have, and even just pers- a lot of the personal connections I have without Twitter, and even uh, furthermore, I wouldn't have the job that I have right now without Twitter. Yeah. The, my boss and I initially connected over Twitter. So Twitter has been really meaningful in my life. And because of that, I don't feel like I am really obligated to abandon it, even if some people are kind of mean on, to me about it. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, Twitter, I think, is is a really wonderful place. Uh, if it's done well, if, if people curate their timelines well, it can be a really generative space for a lot of really interesting conversations. Um, and, and for me, like, you know, I'm, I'm a person who really likes humor. Uh, comedy has always been a really important part of my life. I grew up with a family that was always cracking jokes and everything. Um, and so Twitter, you know, is a really wonderful place for that. People are making jokes and, and saying things all the time that are just goofy. Um, and so for that reason and for like all the connections I've made on Twitter, I love it. And I would never, I would never like there's the, you know, people can be as mean as they want to me on it. Like that is not going to be a thing that like prevents me from being on Twitter. Like it would really require like actual threats or something, right? Like that seemed pretty credible that at that point, maybe like I would need to dial back, but you know, just people like saying that I'm a heretic, like, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. So, um, yeah, I, I care a lot about Twitter for that reason. I think it's really a wonderful place, but I also understand why a lot of people really have a lot of hesitancy with it. Yeah. I, uh, I, I definitely use your account as my place to go to learn like all the new, like lingo, like trads. I didn't, you know, that's a new one for me. Uh, now <laughs> I'm using that in my thought life. Um, but no, I, I agree with you. And uh, I mean, 
the podcast that I mentioned earlier that I'm starting, that wouldn't be happening if it wasn't through Twitter. I feel like Twitter is the new um, like academic conference where before you had to like fly to places. That's a great way to describe it. You totally. had to go to these conferences in order to network and meet people. Maybe you get a phone number or an email. Now like everything's happening through Twitter. You know, all the pragmatists that I know and, and correspond with are through Twitter. Um, so I think that that's right. Yeah, totally. I mean, at a time, you know, let's say, let's say like 50 years ago, at, at one time, if you wanted to have conversations about theology, like maybe you could have like a book group. Like, I, I don't know if like, uh, if like June Cleaver was having a theology book group with, with her 1950s friends, but like that was kind of maybe that way. But like beyond that, it really was just strictly for academics, right? Uh, you know, it's for people who are going to AAR and doing their like theology thing. Um, and it's really incredible to me that like I'm having conversations, like for example, a couple episodes ago on my podcast, I was talking with, with, uh, David Cogden, a really esteemed, uh, Boltmanian scholar, right? Probably the best Boltmanian scholar in the world right now. Uh, and I'm having a conversation with him about the resurrection and like Boltmanian hermeneutic of all that. And, and I'm also having a conversation in that same podcast episode with David Roberts, who just so happens to be a youth pastor at a church and happens to have just like become really good friends with David Cogden. And here is a youth pastor at a church, right, who just happens, happens to be really interested in theology and really compelled by the things that David Cogden has written and has struck up a, com- a com- not only just a conversation, but a friendship with David Cogden. And and really, in, in, like in the same light, I, I have done that too with David Cognon. And here is this really esteemed scholar having a conversation with all of us about the resurrection and hermeneutics and all that sort of thing, right? Like 50 years ago, a dude who's in seminary, a dude who is in uh, a youth pastor, and then a scholar are not going to have those conversations. Right. So it really is it's fascinating that a place like Twitter is a place where th- those relationships are able to initiate, emerge, and then be cultivated. Um, none of that would have happened without Twitter. And so I'm fascinated by Twitter for that, re- for that reason. I mean, even just all the other conversations outside of um, my conversations with David Cobb and, and David Roberts. I mean, I'm having conversations with people all the time about process and about you know all the things that I'm interested in theologically and none of again none of that would have been able to be accessed in such a public way um prior to social media uh especially twitter um a lot of those conversations were really exclusive to a theological academic theologian's body kind of thing right so i'm i'm really fascinated by twitter in that reason uh, uh for that reason so anyway I really like Twitter. <laughs> what are your uh, What are your tips? What are your top three tips for people who either have a podcast or are getting a you know trying to promote a book, trying to build a Twitter following? Because here's one thing: you get Twitter. Uh, you just do. Uh, I think you're probably going to, you probably will write a book about the theology of Twitter at some point. I'm just, I'm, I'm prophesying it now. Uh, but God, I hope not. Like, <laughs> I mean, I get it, but like, I hope not. What are your, what are your tips other than being controversial, which you are? Um, yeah, I mean, here's like the thing about the controversial thing. Like I'm not <laughs> trying to be that, but like, I'm not, you sound uh, defensive. You know, like I think of, no, yeah, no, I get it. Like, <laughs> I get why people, but I really am not trying to be controversial. Like I'm like, I get there's people there who like identify as provocateurs. I'm, I'm honestly genuinely not trying to do that. I'm simply trying to have a conversation and trying to sort of say my thing that I think to be true in the moment. Um, you know, especially those who have been following me for several years now, you know, even including yourself, like you've seen my theology change, right? Like, it's not like I'm, it's not like what I say now will be, it's stamped and finalized for eternity. That's not the way it works for me. Uh, and so I'm just simply saying a thing that I think to be true at that moment. And I'm willing to, uh, even in that moment, to be critiqued by it and even maybe change it. Um, like to me, the way that people interact, like they see a tweet and they think that that's like a formal declaration of like what I think. No, like that's not at all. Like how, how I'm 
talking about theology on Twitter. I'm just saying a thing and then like, let's see if I'm wrong about that thing or if I'm maybe right or like, I'm just saying a thing to start a conversation. Really. It's, it's meant to open a conversation rather than to close it. Right. Um, so with that said, I don't try to be a, like a provocateur or controversial on Twitter. That's certainly not the case. But in terms of like tips, uh, you know, if like per, a person is really like seriously considering like this is a way in which they're going to, you know, like you know, start their podcast or maybe like start a career or something. I mean, I, I think first off, like they need to have like a project that is accessible to people. Yeah. It might be a podcast. It might be YouTube. It might be like a blog. I mean, there's lots of different things that are publicly accessible that people can create uh, that I, I think are really needed for people then to kind of see your the breadth of your work. And, and eat, regardless if they're engaging with it or not, they're, they know that you're like a credible source within your field because like you have a website and you have a blog or a podcast or a YouTube channel. Like you're a person that's creating a thing yeah. and just by simply creating a thing, people will think that you're credible enough, right? Uh, that's the way that works with people, right? So the fact that I have a podcast, so like when, like let's say a random person who sees my tweet online, they don't follow me, they don't know who I am, but they see my tweet on Twitter and they click on my profile and they see that I have a podcast, that immediately for them tells them, hey, this person like, is interlocated within this world. Like he's been a thing that's trying to contribute to this, to this field or to this topic. Um, and so I really am convinced that like, if you want to like have some sort of credible voice within all of this, you have to have a thing that people are able to say, that's what you do. Whether it's a podcast, whether it's a YouTube channel, whether it's a blog, whether it's a nonprofit, whatever it is, you have to be like kind of related back to like, you do that thing. Um, and so I, I think first off, it, if you want to build a career and do this sort of thing that, you know, like where you're writing books and you're speaking and you're podcasting and you're, you know, building a platform, that's the first thing that needs that. You can't just be, unless you're like, your tweets are like incredibly popular or something. You can't just tweet and not have a thing. Right. right. So there is that. Uh, the other thing that I think just needs to be the case is like, you just have to know, your audience. Like you have to know what tends to be snappy. I mean, with Twitter, especially like things need to be snarky, things need to be snippy. Um, and like, even there's like a design element to it. Like you need to know like how, like what things need to be lowercase and what things don't and like what kind of punctuation you use. And all of that just like kind of comes from experience from Twitter. I've been on Twitter for almost, yeah, almost 10 years now, which is kind of actually, yeah, almost 10 years, which is really hard to believe. Um, and just over those 10 years, I kind of slowly have understood like what works for Twitter? Like what do people like on Twitter? And I've been able to kind of figure out like, okay, the thing that I'm really good at or know to be well, to work well on Twitter, like I just sort of lean into it, right? I found like the thing that people really like and sort of lean into it. So really a lot of it really develops into what do people tend to like from you on Twitter and just lean into it? Uh, what works well for me is not going to work well for, I, I'm just throwing out names, Shane Claiborne, right? She's all about death penalty stuff, right. really serious, genuine tweets. That is, if, if Shane started tweeting like me, won't work for Shane. Like he's going to get one like or two likes and it's going to be a barrage of people that are going to hate him. Like Farewell, it's just Shane not going to work. He's going, well, I mean, he's probably already been farewelled by enough people, but like he, he'll certainly be farewelled if he started tweeting like me. Um, but like you have to know what people like for what you're tweeting, right? So just like knowing your audience more or less, like and, and all this is to say, like I'm not an expert on this, right? Like I just am a person that so happens to have like tweeted some stuff and some people like it and I have kind of figured out like what people like. I'm not a marketing major. I'm not a communications major. It's like I don't, I don't know any of the, any of these things uh, as like an expert. I don't even, I haven't even studied any of these things. Uh, but what I do know is like what has worked for me and from what I've observed from other people, right? Um, so like for example, like if I was ever going to write a book, like people are going to expect snark from me, right? 
So if I'm going to write a book, it's going to have to be snarky and stuff. So, um, so you just like have to know your audience and know how to like work all of that, uh, into something. And the other big thing, like you just have to be consistent. Like if, like the people who t- in, in general, not always, but in general, the people who have the biggest followings on Twitter are the people tweeting the most. Right. Go figure. So you have to just like tweet a lot and you have to tweet a lot to all the people that like are interlocated within the kind of thing you're interested in. Yeah. It doesn't have to be the- theology or whatever it is, right? Like if you're interested in the NFL, then like you have to be talking about the NFL. You have to be responding to all the like top NFL people. Like you have to be interlocated within that, right? Regardless of whatever it is. So like you just have to kind of insert yourself. And I think like more or less like I, I've been intentional about that. I have intentionally commented and replied and like over the course of a number of years, like that has eventually kind of spawned into, oh, people think that I have a thing to say. I'm not even saying that I, I'm a credible authority within the word. Certainly I'm not that. Like people certainly don't think of me in that way. Um, I'm an MDiv student. Like people don't think of me in that way. But at the very least, like they think that I have a thing to say within this world. Uh, could any of this get away in like an academic or a scholarship setting? Certainly not. Like I can't, like I can't like go to like an academic and say, hey, I had this tweet retweeted so many times uh, about Jesus and that is going to make me credible. Hey, that might change. <laughs> Maybe. I, yeah, that's certainly. I'm, and actually, as somebody who really uh, has a lot of issues with academia, I really hope that would change. I don't know if how many times you've been retweeted is the way in which we determine whether or not you're an authority, but I think there certainly are issues with academia um, and hopefully like Twitter actually is able to critique some of that. But anyway, all of that's to say, like, I think the few tips that I have is like, have a thing that people know you for a blog, nonprofit, podcast, whatever it is, have a thing that people can go to to your work and like, know that you do a thing. Uh, and then the other thing is just know your audience, like know what people like about what you say. Mm. Um, and then do that. Well, I'm not overly great at Instagram. Like the only things I'm really good at Instagram is like posting on my story that tweets that I find really funny. Uh, but it's not like I'm really good at like creating this like kind of like blog structure and this really like cool photo. Like I'm not good at that. And Instagram isn't my audience. Um, and that's fine. Uh, so just like know your audience, know where they're at, know what they like from you and then just sort of lean into it and find some consistency and do whatever it is, like whatever that platform is, whether it's Twitter, whether it's Instagram, whatever it is, like do it a lot, not too much, but do it a lot. Yeah, well, what people like from me apparently is uh, neighbor gossip and uh, <laughs> telling people what's going on with my neighbors. That was insane. Uh, I did not think that that, that was super interesting. <laughs> I did not and, think so at all. Yes. I was just responding to someone else saying like, "I wonder what's happening to people with secret families." And I was like, "Oh, it's really funny because this just happened to me yesterday." Um, and then that blew up. And then all of a sudden it blows up. Yeah, that was. I got like five hundred new people from that. Um, that was no, wild. That man, wow. Yeah. I just kept counting yeah, and I was like, wait, this can't be real. And now I like don't remember where I used to be like before that happened. But yeah, everyone was uh, following me and saying like, and they like made a point to comment. Uh, th- I'm just following to keep up on this story. So I'm like, shit, like I need more details to give these people. Uh, so I'm like, here's yeah, a tr- right. here's a tree that fell on a house, you know, in my neighborhood. Like maybe this will, you know, feed you guys right. for a week or two. Um, but, uh, I want to stop talking about Twitter so much. So, uh, my next question is, uh, what's the one thing that all Christians have to agree on to be called a Christian? Oh my goodness. You, <laughs> you want to bring up Twitter, don't you? Like you're just egging it on. No, no, um, no. I'm trying to get away from that no, topic. No. Here, explain that. Explain that. Here's my conclusion right now. This is a, this is a working conclusion. So like, don't, again, don't consider this finalized. Uh, this is my working conclusion. The only thing, and this is not a theological claim, the, uh, it's not a doctrinal claim, it's it's no claim at all other than the fact that it's a, I don't know how else to describe it, I don't know what the category for it, personal claim. Um, the only thing, the only claim that I think all Christians throughout every culture, throughout all of history would say is that they are a Christian. 
I was literally going to say the same thing. The only claim that they all hold in common is that they self-identify as a Christian. That's yeah. the only thing I'm able to. Now, I think there are some theological claims there that like real, like maybe 99% of Christians can say, right? That, and I had some, like and when I tweeted about this, like I had some really, I think, interesting responses that like made me really kind of think, well, maybe, you know, that covers a lot, seems to cover the most, if not 99%. Um, and you know, from my like perspective, right, like I'm always trying to find the exceptions, right? Always trying to find the exceptions. Um, especially when I, when I think about something like that, again, to me, it's just like a thought experiment. I'm not, when I tweeted something like that, that is not a formal declaration. That is not me creating some catechesis that says, this is what, uh, Mason Menega believes and everybody else needs to believe it. That's not what I'm doing at all. I'm just trying to like say a thing, explore a thing and, you know, let's see how if we can have a conversation about it. Uh, you know, but certainly people don't relate to Twitter like that. When they see a tweet, they think of it as a formal decoration and, but you know, and then, then they'll respond to it in that way as if it is that that's not what I'm doing. And, but yeah, I don't, I, I really can't, I hate it. I really can't say that there really is anything else out there other than maybe, all Christians can claim that they are Christians. <laughs> no, I, I I actually completely agree with you. If you want to include all people who are self-identified and Christian, which I know is like a total circle, it's probably not a good sociological study. It's probably not how sociological or sociologists actually study something. Uh, but I'm also not a sociologist. I'm just a person that just tweeted the thing. Well, I, I mean, I think that that um, I think that answer has at least philosophical grounds. I mean, from a Wittgensteinian perspective, I mean, meaning is use, and so the word Christian, the meaning of Christian, is how we use it. And so, the only people that can de- that can determine or constitute the meaning of Christian are the people that use that word and use it for themselves. I mean, what Christian means changes uh, historically. Over the last, you know, two thousand years, it is what we do with it, and mm-hmm. if that changes, then yeah. then it changes, and then you know, and then some big influential movement happens, like fundamentalism, where they, you know, basically give the impression to everyone that, you know, what we believe is the way it always has been since the early church. But I mean, so many people have made that claim, and yeah. it's just not goddamn true. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the funny thing about like fundamentalism is that fundamentalism makes this weird move where, you know, it started, I mean, fundamentalism as we know it today started, you know, you know, at its earliest in the late 19th century. Um, so like, it really is like the last, like, if you, like, if you had, if you put Christianity on like a percentage kind of thing, right? Like, so like in one or, uh, you know, 33 AD or whenever, you know, that's like where 0% starts. And then 2020 is 100%. Like literally fundamentalism starts at like 99% or not 90, but like 90%. Like it's, it's really far, uh, removed from the origins of Christianity. Uh, but it makes these claims as if the origins of Christianity made their same claims, which is totally not true at all. Um, and it's just, it's really fascinating to me that, you know, they would make such a, like an absurd claim uh, starting in the uh, 1870s or kind of whenever fundamentalism really started um, its thing. So it's fascinating to me that that's their claim. Like, it's just, it's an absurd claim to like make why they feel like they need to make it. Like I get what, like they feel like with the origin that there's like some sort of pure essence to the origin and that they're trying to get back to that origin. And if we are able to get back to that origin, that pure essence, then we, uh, it's more true. It's more real. And that's the, the problem, the problem with that though, like the thing that they really ignore with that is like immediately, immediately within Christianity and even within like, when Jesus was still alive and he had followers, they couldn't even agree on who this person was. Right. Uh, and they couldn't agree on what the thing that he was starting, this movement, and then eventually a religion was supposed to be. Like there were already at the very at the very start of it, even while he was alive, there was no agreement, no uniformity whatsoever. 
Um, and so to me, this is part of the reason why I wanted to explore the question that I did on Twitter was that to me, Christianity is inherently plural. It's inherently plural. It sort, I guess, sort of centers around like particular narratives uh, about Jesus. Uh, but again, that that's not a theological claim. Um, and and so like there's sort of like a centering around like the life teachings and death of Jesus. Uh, but like how you interpret that, how you form community around that, all of that from the, like even the time that Jesus was around, none of that was uniform. It's always been plural. It's been very different. And so to me, if, if Christianity is that plural and has always been that plural, then that's something we really should lean into. That's something that we should embrace that Christianity has always been that way, that nobody thinks the same about who Jesus is and how we ought to form community around the person of Jesus. Mm. So anyway, uh, I think that's ultimately what I was trying to explore with, uh, with that question about the sort of like one thing that everybody, every Christian agrees upon. I don't think there is one there. At least certainly it doesn't seem, doesn't seem to be a theological claim. Uh, but with that said, there certainly seems to be the person of Jesus that matters a lot, uh, and forming community around the life death or the life teachings and death of Jesus. Um, that seems to be important. Uh, and all that's to say though, like everybody interprets that differently and everybody forms communities around that differently. So to me, it feels like it's an inherently a plural, uh, a plural religion. Yeah, for sure. I think that any, I mean, when we speak of truth and we talk about truth as living, I think that any live or living truth has to be something that you can't contain in a definition or a set of doctrines. I mean, the very fact that it's living means that it's growing, that it's changing over time, that it's developing and evolving. Um, and I, I feel like the fact that it is such a plural thing, um, and that it is such a diverse thing and a changing and growing and developing thing. I think that that all is <laughs> is indirect evidence for the tradition itself. The fact that it can be so applicable in so many different cultures and so many different contexts, I mean, that actually gives, you know, gives some sort of weight to there being something behind it, even though, you know, mm-hmm. you can take all the superstition away, you can take all the, you know, all the miracles away, you can take away, you know, even the resurrection of Jesus, which, you know, you were just talking about with, um, uh, with Congdon on your podcast. I mean, you can take some of those things away and you can still call yourself a Christian. It's a changing, developing thing, meaning is use and how we use that, yeah. of course. So like, I like to think of identity in a Rorian way. That's Richard Rorty. And he talks a lot about our self-image and philosophy being about our self-image. And I think that uh, theology and religion has a lot to do with our self-image which, you know, which relies on the story we tell about our past. Um, what is the story that we tell about our past? Is the story we tell about mm-hmm. a bunch of white guys going back as far as we can think of white guys? Or, you know, is it, does it include, you know, black and queer, theolo- you know, theologians? Does it include mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. cultures mm-hmm. that get, you know, that get ignored uh, by, you know, theology 101 classes, you know, just normal th- theology? Um you know, what kind of story are you telling? What kind of, you know, who are the fathers and mothers of that story? When we think of a tradition or, or a mm-hmm. story uh, that goes back in time, who are the fathers and mothers? You know, we have Abraham and we have, you know, Jesus and we have Paul. I, I mean, honestly, if those are the only people that are in that story, you have problems with your story. You need to include um, right. some some women. You need to include some, you know, some. Other, you need to include Martin Luther King mm-hmm. Jr. You need to include, you know, all sorts of different people in your story. Um, and so when I'm talking to people to try to get behind what they mean by Christian, it, I'm like, okay, tell me the story of your self-image. Like, who who do you include in that family line? Um, and that tells me a lot about someone's, you know, theology and their, you know, and their biases, mm-hmm, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, one of the things that I find interesting about that, too, is that ideally— Ideally, people are adding on to those those uh, those forebears, um, and so, for example, like where you know, whereas like two years ago, I wouldn't have included some like Marcella House Reed, I now do. She is a forebear of my theology, 
uh, Catherine Keller included, right? So, you know, whereas seven years ago, I sometimes, I have time hop. And so I'm often able to like see like things that I tweeted in Facebook seven years ago, which is really, it's very um, scary. <laughs> I, it's very scary. Uh, I, I'll see something about like John Piper or whatever. Right. And whereas seven years ago, John Piper was a forebearer in, in how I understood Christianity and, uh, was a forebearer, forefather in my faith. Yeah. Um, now I, I realize he is not anymore, but other people have been included in uh, as a forebearer. Um, and and yeah, like I, I think a lot of those people have become massively influential in my life. Um, certainly, you know, you, you include someone like Jesus and Paul and and some of like the early people. But it really is interesting, and in, especially in my seminary experience, that almost exclusively, not a hundred percent, but almost exclusively, I can think of some other folks that are not like this, but almost exclusively, most of the people that I, uh, that have become most influential in my, in my own theology are people who are still living, <laughs> uh, which, you know, especially if you're on theology, Twitter, it's probably not super common. Uh, there's a lot of conversation about people who have died decades, hundreds, hundreds, if not thousands of years ago. And and that's not to minimize that. Like those folks, those people really had a lot of influence, a lot of things to say, uh, and they still have a lot of things to say. That's not to minimize that at all. But the people in my own personal theology who have mattered the most to me tend to be people who are still alive. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I care a lot about what's happening now. What's happening now and what do people now have to say about now? Uh, and so because of that, I really care about people who are talking about things now and they have become immediately placed in the forefront of my uh, theological influences. And so they become the theological and, and religious forebearers for me. Um, so anyway, all that's to say, I, I totally agree with Roar there that the, the image bearers, the people who, um, the, the people who tend to be ignored, the people who tend to be oppressed, but still have a massive, massive influence in our faith, uh, they certainly have, um, including the people who live now. There are people who are living now that thousands of years from now, we are going to be talking about them. Humans are going to be talking about them in the same way that we talk about Origen, in the same way that we talk about Augustine. Um, there are people who are living now that we're going to be talking about in that same way. Yeah. And those are the people who I'm really interested in. Um, again, that's not to minimize uh, folks from decades, hundreds, and thousands of years ago before, but it is to say that the people who are talking about things now really matter a lot to me because those are the people we're going to be talking about thousands of years later. Mm. Yeah, I was just um, I was just talking to I don't know if you know him, Robert Monson. Um, I met him through Twitter. I think we're I going. just talked to Robert last week. Oh, really? So great, wonderful. Yeah, I just Cher- talked to him cherub of it. Yeah, he's awesome. He's great. I, um, I, we were just talking about um, like Luther, like Martin Luther, uh, not not the junior, uh, Martin Luther, the reform uh, reformationist or reformist. I don't know. Um, and and other people who who are Christians who've been important for the tradition. Um, in, in, you know, sometimes profound ways, but who we don't want to, you know, in the terms of the conversation that you and I are having, who are, who we don't want to claim as forefathers. And so like riffing mm-hmm. a little longer on this idea of self image, um, we have to be honest about the people who are part of that tradition, whether we like them or not, you know, like John Piper, he might've been, you know, a forefather yeah. at one point, but then we develop, we learn, we grow, you know, morally, ethically, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. in all mm-hmm. sorts of ways. And we can't write him out of the family, but he's like the uncle who, you know, we don't really want around the kids too long. Um, you know, we kind of put them in their place, but we have to be honest about who's yeah. in the family while, you know, while celebrating some other people in the family yes. as exemplars, we can push other ones a little bit to the side. Um, so I think that that's important so that we don't create too much of a revisionist history that Absolutely. sort of tells the story that we want to a little too conveniently. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I, I'm, 
really not interested in saying that someone like John Piper is not a Christian. <laughs> right. Not interested. I mean, you I, I, we can maybe argue whether or not he's Christ-like, but I, I, you sometimes see people like say that he's not a Christian now, or like he said a thing that isn't Christian. I'm not interested in that conversation. If, if he says he's a Christian and he does, uh, then he is. And I have to reckon with the fact that I am a part of the same religious community as he is, yeah. uh, despite the fact that we almost on everything disagree. That's something that really is some, that's something that is difficult to, to reckon with. Um, I, I think along the lines uh, of what you talked with, with Robert about sort of honoring the fact or maybe like affirming, affirming the fact that at one point someone like that is influential in your faith. One of the things since we last talked that has been really helpful for me to sort of acknowledge, affirm, and then process through is that Pentecostalism has been a really important part of my life. Ooh, say more about that. Yeah, I think for a long time I was I, – I, I think I really reject Pentecostalism or just was sort of ignorant of the fact that Pentecostalism had become a really important part of my own faith. Uh, I didn't grow up in the Pentecostal tradition. I grew up in like prototypical conservative evangelicalism that was not Pentecostal. Um, but every year throughout high school in, in – essentially throughout every year in college, I went on a missions trip to the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. And on at that reservation, we would, we would help out this church that was a Pentecostal church. Very small. Maybe, maybe on any given Sunday, there was maybe 30 local people there. So it was very small, very rural, and typical Pentecostalism services were three to four hours long. And they just kind of kept going as long as they did. Right. Uh, and I, I loved it. It was incredibly formed by it. In fact, when I initially went to college, I wanted a missionary out there working with that church. Um, and, and it's often like, I, I now like think back over the last like year or so about, especially ecclesiologically, why I think about the things that I do and why am I influenced in the way that I am ecclesiologically it's because of my experiences in rural Pentecostalism in a group of 30 or so people who were completely led by the spirit. Didn't matter what kind of music that they made. Didn't matter what kind of structured sermon a preacher would have. Like none of that mattered. There was interaction. There was participation in a way that I had never experienced growing up. And that influence still inhabits me today. I can't shake it off of me. Certainly, I mean, this, this Pentecostal church in particular was certainly fundamentalist. I mean, they were, they were six day creationists. They, they were as fundamentalist as fundamentalists come. Hallelujah. Exactly. But ecclesiologically, I can't cha- I can't shake off the fact that they were incredibly influential on in the way that I was formed. And I think that the, that their ecclesiology manifest even into my own theology of participation in bod- again embodiment and materiality there were movements there were bodies that were in participation i saw a person that was mentally ill um that you know at, at the time i thought of as demonic possession this person was mentally ill and he was healed his body was freed from from his mental illness or had worked through his mental illness. Right. And I think about that much differently than I do at the, did at the time, but like all that's to say bodies were mattering in this moment. Yeah. Bodies mattered and bodies were liberated. And, and so all of that, like, you know, there was all of this, this fundamentalist garbage that gets placed on top of that where I wasn't able to see that at one time, but now I am. I'm able to see how that experience in rural Pentecostalism transformed the way that I experienced Christianity. And again, at the time, I was completely unaware of it and really was unaware of it until the last year when I started reflecting on it as I started to engage theological embodiment, theological materiality, and those sort of things uh, and realize, wow, this experience 
that span the course of seven, eight years uh, throughout high school and college really had a lot to say with how I experienced the world. And it was really uh, tainted by a lot of garbage, a lot of theological fundamentalist garbage. But at the very core, I was experiencing something that was complete embodiment that I had never experienced before. And that still influences me today. Um, and so all of that is to say that I think um, the way in which we experience something at one time certainly might not be all that helpful. It might be toxic at the time. But I think there are are ways in which we can relate to it where we accept it, acknowledge it, see it as a thing that we had at one time. We embrace it as that, but we realize we've moved past it or moved beyond it or evolved from it in a certain way. Um, but we don't have to, again, like, like the term you mentioned, revision, we don't have to revise it in a way where it doesn't exist at all. It did. It mattered to me at a certain time. It's different now. That's okay but it did matter to me at one point. So, um, yeah, that's kind of, I think one specific example of how I've experienced that in my own life. Hmm. Well, uh, I, I resent you for bringing up all this at the end of our time. Um, we're, we're past the time and <laughs> there's I so much we're doing. I, I know we're going to, I mean, we didn't get to process theology. We didn't get to all sorts of different things. We're going to have to, um, oh, I have to have you uh, back on really soon so we can dive into all yeah, we'll that. We'll have to do that third part. Yeah, for sure. You know, you got to keep the people coming, wanting more. Um, no, I'll, I'll just say that it's interesting that Pentecostalism keeps coming up. I mean, it's not that crazy because that is the lifeblood, you know, that I was brought up in. That was the space. That was mm -hmm. my air. Um, all I knew for, you know, my whole life was Pentecostalism. And, you know, after you start to deconstruct your faith coming out of a Pentecostal background and, you know, for me getting into philosophy and science, neurology, psychology, all these different things, it's super easy to just be completely skeptical of all that stuff and say all that was superstitious bullshit. And now, you know, I'm not going to be a dupe anymore. Mm -hmm. And lately I've really been trying to say like, what would, you know, pragmatically, what were the, you know, what were the positive consequences of that? Like, what is good about mm. Pentecostal theology? Because, you know, I was talking about it with, uh, with Robert. It has things about it that other traditions don't naturally um, have as a value or have as a benefit, like the diversity mm -hmm. and the plurality of Pentecostalism. I mean, like we were talking about in, uh, in Luke Acts, I mean, the whole point of the Pentecost was that it, it was a pluralizing and diversifying, you know, yes. inbreathing yes. of, of exactly. the Holy Spirit and that it sent, it, you know, people out to every corners of the earth to all kinds of people. And so inherent in this, you know, strong Holy Spirit um, theology is a plurality, you know, and an invitation to the Gentiles and different cultures and different peoples. And so it's something mm -hmm. that, I, you know, when I was, you know, deep into that faith as a fundamentalist, I was like, yes, you know, this is why we're right because of this, you know, this plurality that we have that other people can't really boast as well, um, which, I mean, is stupid. All Christians can talk about it if they want to. Um, but, you know, going back and saying, like, what were the positive things? What were the values that Pentecostalism instilled in me um, that I still have today and that are actually good? And it's something that keeps coming up in recent episodes. I talked about it with Robert. I'm actually in talks with uh, Jeffrey Pugh to have him on to talk about Pentecostalism. Oh. Um, I don't know if you know his background. We talked a little bit about it in our last— I did uh, not know that he was— Pentecostal. Uh, wow. Well, yeah, for a little bit. He was part of a, you know, a big rapture <laughs> church. Or um, He doesn't like the word cult, but yeah. I mean, you can listen to like the beginning of my episode with him um, that we did previously, but I'm going to have him back on to talk about Pentecostalism because it keeps coming up and, you know, maybe it's just therapy for me, but um, there's definitely something there as you were just <laughs> talking about the embodiment, you know, which is huge for me as a, as a pragmatist and for you as a process person. Uh, but yeah, we can leave it there. And next time I have you on, we should definitely talk about embodiment, process, relationality, and all yes, this stuff absolutely. that we just left off on. Perfect cliffhanger. So before we um, there we go. Before we sign off, I just have one last question for you: Who is Mason Menanga to Mason Menanga? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, it's I'll, your question. I'll give my my yeah, it is my question. I've been asked that question before by some folks. Uh, 
the way I answer it, uh, and, and I think the way I answer it then is probably the way I answer it now is, um, Mesa Menega is a series of events, a series of becomings that, uh, some way, shape or form kind of amalgamate into what we know as Mesa Menega. Um, so, uh, all, all that's to say I, I, I am lots of things and, when you add the sum of all of those things, that is what you get as Mesa Menega. So there's a lot to me. Hopefully there is a lot to me. Uh, and, uh, and all of those things are always in the process of becoming. They are not static. They are, uh, they're enlivened. They are, are always in the process of becoming. So uh, uh, it's all that's to say it's probably hard to put a, a nail down into who Mason Menega is. <laughs> Perfect answer. So there's my um, processing. <laughs> exactly. Um, so where can people find out more about you? Yeah, so I have a website, uh, masonmenega.com, M-A-S-O-N-M-E-N-N-E-N-G-A.com. Uh, I'm most active on Twitter. Uh, it's also just at Mason Menega. And uh, I'm also pretty active on Instagram, uh, again, at Mason Menega. I have my podcast uh, called A People's Theology. Uh, it's available wherever you find podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, or I guess they don't call it iTunes anymore, Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Play, I guess people use that, um, and whatever people, wherever pe- people listen to, to podcasts, it, it will be on there. And if it's not, let me know because I really <laughs> want to get it on there. Uh, and so anyway, you can listen to my podcast. Uh, it typically releases, I release a new episode every Wednesday. Uh, and then, yeah. And if, if you, for whatever reason, if you find that my work is compelling enough, you really want to support what I'm doing, I do have a Patreon and that's patreon.com forward slash Mesa Menega. And you can find me there and, uh, I've got lots of different rewards for people and, uh, you can support me there. Awesome. I'll have links to everything you do, uh, in the show notes and I'll definitely direct people there. Um, I love you, man. Uh, love your stuff. Love your work. Um, Happy that you were able to do this, and we'll definitely do it again. Thanks for coming on, man. Perfect. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I really appreciate you, Hayden. Your your work is incredibly important to me as well, and uh, thank you for so much for the, the really thoughtful questions, and I'm really excited to chat a little bit more about process and embodiment. Thank you all for listening to another episode of the Pragmatic Christian Podcast. My next interview will be with pragmatist philosopher Sammy Peelstrom, where we'll be talking about his new book, Why Solipsism Matters. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Pragmatic Christ, and you can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash pragmatichristian or by telling others about the show. I'll have links to everything in the show notes. Thank you again, and until next time. Thank you.